Hello, everybody, and welcome to Monmouth College Conversations. I'm Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing, and every week during the academic year, I sit down with members of the Monmouth College community to talk to them about their interests, what they do, and things they've done. In this 29th edition of Monmouth College Conversations for the 2022-2023 school year, we're going to talk to Daniel Knowles. He's the Midwest correspondent for The Economist newspaper, and he recently visited campus to give this year's Midwest Matters lecture, as well as to discuss his fascinating book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. About the last 18 months, Daniel Knowles has been the Midwest correspondent for The Economist, one of the world's great publications. Based in Chicago, Daniel has told his publications, more than 1.3 million readers all over the world, what's newsworthy and noteworthy in America's Midwest. On April 18th, Daniel visited Monmouth College to give this year's Midwest Matters Lecture. Then on the next day, he visited with students in Robin Johnson's political science class. Daniel's Midwest Matters Lecture was titled Impressions of a New Midwesterner, in which the native of England gave his observations about living and covering the Midwest. He also discussed his book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Published in late March, the very well-researched Carmageddon is a fascinating take on American car culture. Daniel also looks at the sprawl that cars have made possible throughout the world, why so many policy initiatives to reduce traffic have failed, and the many risks that vehicles pose to pedestrians. Whether you love your vehicle almost as much as your favorite sports team, or you would prefer to live in a carless society, I think you'll find Carmageddon to be an excellent and worthwhile read. When I caught up with Daniel after his Midwest Matters talk at Monmouth, I asked him to give an overview of Carmageddon, how cars make life worse, and what to do about it. Uh, great. So my book, uh, Carmageddon, um, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. So it, it came out a few weeks ago, and it is essentially an argument about how the kind of huge growth of automobiles and automobile ownership to the levels that we, we now have, you know, of people driving in the US, an average of 14,000 miles a year, you know, it, it, it's got way out of hand. That's basically the argument, but more kind of generally it argues that we've got stuck into a, um, a trap, um, a kind of um, coordination problem where because everybody else has a car, you have to have a car and that the world is forcing people to have cars and that if we could undo it, we'd all be freer, richer, uh, happier and healthier. Um, so it's not saying we have to get rid of cars. It's saying that we could be freed from having to be so dependent on our cars as we now are. Where did the idea come up with? Where did you come up with the idea for the book? So... I think it's been something I've been dwelling on. I've been writing about and thinking about urban planning and about kind of transport for pretty much my whole career as a as a journalist and I, and and the links between all of that and how cities grow and where people live and how they live their lives has always been of interest 
to me kind of in my career. I think when I decided to, I like to write it as a book was when I lived in Kenya and when I lived in Mumbai, because I'd read all of this history of urban planning and I'd read, you know, I kind of knew and had come to these opinions of, oh, cars are terrible and isn't it bad? We built motorways everywhere. But I think um, what I hadn't realized is how much it's still happening how many places in the world you know we're still driving motorways through people's neighborhoods and we're still evicting people to make way for parking lots and we're still knocking down kind of you know vibrant businesses to to make space so um for more and more cars and so so i began to think that this kind of idea i had of like oh you know these are the mistakes of the past that we've you know that we're now fixing i began to realize no we're not fixing fixing them and in some places we're still making them worse so you talk about Mumbai it's not only dangerous there to be a driver but it's dangerous there to be a pedestrian oh absolutely I mean the funny thing is that it's probably not that dangerous actually to be a pedestrian or driving Mumbai because the cars move so slowly that it's quite difficult to get run over oh, oh sorry it's very easy to get hit by a car but it's quite difficult to get in seriously injured because the car won't be doing more than about five miles an hour and there's probably a stray cow you can hide behind if somebody is careering at you but it is miserable to be both a driver and a pedestrian in Mumbai um, you you know the, if you are trying to get somewhere in a car you're stuck in jams you know your driver is probably hooting because you won't be driving yourself um, hooting like a, a lunatic to try and push his way through um, and it takes you know hours to get anywhere um, but if you're on foot you have to sort of push your way through all this noisy loud kind of smelly cars as well um, to get to the train station or to get onto a rickshaw so it sort of work it doesn't work for anybody it's just there's, there's too many vehicles and too small a space you live in Chicago where you work for the economist and that's a city that's uh, been affected by the car quite a bit yeah and the history of it is something that I've been kind of enjoying you know not always in a positive way but I've been fascinated to get into learning about the way in which you know say the um, the Dan Ryan expressway was you know was built and particularly the routing it took and the relationship that had to Richard J. Daly's sort of, um, uh, you know, own personal interest in his his neighbourhood, of course. And then, you know, near where I live is the, is the Kennedy and, you know, some of the history of, of that and some of the, the, the Chicago really went quite big on, on, on building expressways and trying to rebuild itself in this period in the 60s and 70s. And, and it, it wasn't all positive. And I think there are some... It has to really grapple with some of some of the damage that was done now. You have these large areas of essentially kind of wasteland in between these very vibrant, you know, wonderful neighborhoods, but that were just have, have been sort of ruined by, by car infrastructure. And, and Chicago is still this kind of dense city. So everybody suffers in traffic jams trying to get around. Everybody hates driving in the city. But the alternatives are not good enough either. Um, and they haven't been invested in over the years. And the kind of the, the powerful people in Chicago mostly still get around in their cars and I think see 
the world through the windscreen. But if you look at who wants to move to Chicago, I think Chicago's success actually depends on becoming, you know, a bit more like New York City, actually. And that it means getting the only way Chicago can grow its way back and to become, you know, the, the kind of true make space for the people it needs to have it's going to pay its pension bills and everything else I think is to get rid of some of the cars to make more space for people. You're listening to Monmouth College Conversations. I'm Dwayne Bonifer in the Office of Communications and Marketing. I'm visiting with Daniel Knowles. He's the Midwest correspondent of The Economist and the author of the recently released book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. Before we get back to my conversation with Daniel, a reminder that Monmouth will hold four concerts to close out this academic year. The first of the college's springtime of music concerts will be held on Friday, April 28th. That's when the Wind Ensemble, directed by Justin Swearinger, will perform the world premiere of Paideia Fanfare, among other selections. On Sunday, April 30th, four ensembles will present concerts, the Civic Orchestra, directed by Rich Kangro, the Symphonic Concert Band, that's directed by John Eckstein, the Concert Choir, directed by Tom Clark, and the Chamber Choir, directed by the Venerable Tim Pale. Then on May 2nd, the Jazz Ensemble, directed by Stephen Jackson, will hold its semester-ending concert. All of those performances will be held in Dahl Chapel and Auditorium, and they are all free and open to the public. For more information, check out the news story in the news and events section of the Monmouth College website. And of course, that address is monmouthcollege.edu slash news. Now let's get back to my conversation with the economist Daniel Knowles and his book, Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. One of the more interesting points Daniel makes in Carmageddon is how much of a burden owning and maintaining a car is on the working poor. It's some astonishing figures that I, that, I mean, you look at the, the bottom quartile of Americans or sort of quintile of Americans, bottom 20% by income, and they're spending a, a quarter of their income on um, running, on, on transport, almost all of which is on running cars. And that's, that's way higher than people in, you know, most rich European countries, even though, you know, European countries are, are poorer. Um, and it's kind of the case all the way up the income scale that almost all Americans are spending at least kind of 10, 11% of their income on running cars it's yes it's huge you know and then as taxpayers we're all paying a whole bunch to maintain the roads and to maintain this infrastructure and I think particularly you know we've been talking about cities yeah I think one of the emerging problems that's not just in the Midwest but is emerging in a lot of places as population growth slows and populations decline in some places you know you have an awful lot of, of suburbs older suburbs that are spending that have such a have to spend such a high proportion of their budget just maintaining roads and because they're so spread out and running basic services that's so expensive because they're so sprawling because they're built around the car that they eat up all their tax revenue and they're barely able to provide you know the services that even though people are paying really high taxes they're they're not able to provide the services that would kind of justify living there so i think that that's going to become an emerging you know problem in 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 the next few decades as a sort of legacy suburbs that just can't afford their infrastructure anymore 
one of the things I found fascinating about the book was you talked about when the car emerged that there wasn't universal acclaim for it, that there, there were people who, who opposed the car and uh, re- resisted it. Oh, yeah, hugely so. Um, you know, and I wrote about the UK and the US. And in the, in the UK, there was this very big kind of pushback, um, uh, you know, against the idea of sort of rich aristocrats driving. But the US was almost a more interesting pushback because it came in the 1920s. You had these huge, they called them safety parades, but people came out in, you know, Baltimore en masse. And it was this is 1920, 1921, you know, not long after the end of the First World War, people were going out to to protest about children being killed by cars, um, you know, doing mock sort of um, carrying coffins and sometimes cenotaphs, um, uh, putting up and putting up laws to try and stop cars. In Cincinnati, there was a proposal to put um, uh, kind of speed limiters on all vehicles coming into the city, um, which. And and it it was it was there was a moment at which cars really could have been kind of restricted, and it was then, and um, and it didn't happen because of, in part, the sort of quite effective organisation of the car industry and of people, you know, the minority of people who own cars and were using them and, and you know, for, and for whom cars were a huge boon. And, and I think, unfortunately, once they'd sort of won and the city's world was began to really be rebuilt for cars, then it became rational for everybody else to get one. You know, if your kid was getting run over walking, then put your kid in a car. It's far safer. So. I thought it was interesting that the jaywalking rules uh, came about to uh, for cars not because of pedestrians. Yeah, I mean, they, they were lobbied for. I think the very first one was in Los Angeles and they were lobbied for by car dealerships. And it was this idea of, you know, you've got to get pedestrians out the road. The road is not for people. And it always used to be that the road was for everybody. The street was for everybody. Um, and, you know, jaywalking laws, we they're still on the books in a lot of places. I think Los Angeles only just kind of removed or stopped enforcing it. So it's down to you know, almost 100 years. And they disproportionately are used against the poorest people. Um, they're, 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 and they are, they're a restriction on your liberty. And the riches in the land of the free, you're not allowed to walk in the street. You have to walk to the crossroad. It's baffling to me that Americans ever accepted that. <laughs> You give some really good examples of cities both in Europe and in Japan that have done a fairly good job taming the car. Yeah, so so I think Japan, Tokyo is actually a place that I wrote most of a chapter about, and I think it's fascinating because they they didn't so much tame the car or they as never let it in the first place. It's the only major city I could find, really think of anywhere in the world that was built. Um, well, actually, no, there's a few, but they're all in East Asia. It's so Singapore, Hong Kong, but cities that were built almost entirely after the Second World War, rebuilt, you know, because Tokyo was, was, was firebombed and rebuilt without sort of being dominated by the car. And what's fascinating about Tokyo is that it kind of, it's not that they spend a fortune subsidizing public transport or, you know, or even that they ban cars or anything. They just, they just charge the, the market value for it. So, you know, you, you can have a car, but you have to pay for your parking space. Um, and that enough is that does on its own. It means that people people still own cars, but they only use them when it makes sense. 
because it's too it's it doesn't it's if you pay the full cost of it it's not worth it using it all of the time for everything so they'll use a car if they need to to carry a lot of heavy stuff but they won't for their like daily journeys and that's that's and their their trains make a profit and they get you everywhere whereas you know american trains public transport systems are really hard to use and cost a fortune in subsidies so i think there's a you know there's a kind of uh there's, there are a lot of lessons to be learned there, but uh, I also, yeah, I wrote about you know Paris and Amsterdam, lots of cities that are beginning to change and to reduce cars, um, and the cities in America that are doing that too. I mentioned Minneapolis as one that's actually been doing some incredible work, relative terms. So I think it can happen in America too. Realistically, what sort of policies do you think America can adopt or approach toward cars that they can adopt for cities like Atlanta or Houston, where the cars just seem to run amok? I think that changing Houston or Atlanta is going to be difficult, but the way to start it is by allowing the building of of more dense housing around what public transport systems they do have. And actually, Houston has begun to do that, so that you can have these clusters of density, at least in the cities. And I think the target in those cities should be making it so that, you know, families can get by with one car um, if they want to, rather than being forced to have two, because the median American family has two cars. But I think the real kind of, um, you know, in America in general, the real sort of um, missing opportunity, um, uh, unexploited opportunity is in the, the, the bigger, older cities, particularly on the coast, but I'd also include Chicago, which have the kind of bones of public transport centric cities and their populations have either stagnated or declined in you know recent decades. And I think that if you take, if you give back some space that's been taken away by cars, then to humans, then you can kind of you can grow the population of those cities an awful lot. And there's a huge demand. You know, the prices that people are willing to pay in rents shows how much demand there is to live in those places. So if we sort of allowed the market to to supply more housing, to supply, if we allowed building, A, it would make the public transport systems work better, and B, we could grow there, there too. And I think, you know, that's where I think the real kind of low-hanging fruit is, whereas fixing Houston, it's not impossible, but it'll be hard. And you pointed this out several times in the book, building more roads or another bridge isn't the solution. No, because it just means that people just drive more. Um, and the great, I, one of the, the, the great things that keeps happening in America is that a State Department of Transport will will expand a road and to pay for it, they will put a toll on the road. And what they discover is that once they put the toll on, and the toll might only be a dollar or two, that they have less traffic than they had before the expansion. So they didn't need to widen the road, they just needed to put a toll on it. And that would have done the job. <laughs> That's Daniel Knowles. He's the Midwest correspondent of The Economist and author of the recently published Carmageddon, How Cars Make Life Worse and What to Do About It. It's a very entertaining, thoughtful read, and I highly recommend the book. Daniel also gave this year's Midwest Matters lecture, as well as spoke to students in Robin Johnson's political science class when he was on campus in the middle of April. And that's a wrap on this 29th episode of Monmouth College Conversations. You can tell us what you think about the podcast or add to the conversation by firing off an email to us at news at monmouthcollege.edu. Be sure to put conversation in the subject line. 
Until our next conversation, this is Dwayne Bonifer in the Monmouth College Office of Communications and Marketing. Thanks so much for listening. So long, everybody, and have a nice day. All right, brother. Thank you.